The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Arendt-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever. We look at stories from business leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they pick themselves up, and how they hope work will change in the future. Negotiations, like it or not, are part of all of our lives every day. Until I learned to negotiate like myself, I was a puddle in every negotiation. I said yes too quickly, and I didn't fight for my terms. I'd take everything personally, and I left a lot of opportunities and financial benefit on the table simply because I was scared to ask. Now I trust my gut, and I handle negotiations in my own way, by doing my homework, asking lots of questions, and finding a common thread between me and my counterparts. I use empathy. And my guest today says that's a good thing. And yes, I still get anxious. The stereotype about a negotiation is that it's a game of chicken. Someone has to leave the table or die. This approach is called combative or positional negotiation. And it's what we see in movies and also in my favorite reality TV genre, real estate shows. The reality in a lot of negotiations is something more tame, but they can be particularly hard for people who suffer from anxiety to deal with. Today, we're here to help. Chris Voss is an author, a former FBI hostage negotiator, and CEO of the Black Swan Group. His masterclass in negotiation is incredibly popular, which I think speaks to just how much people loathe negotiations and also want to get better at them. I started by asking him why negotiation is so essential in our careers, in his view. Yeah, because it permeates everything we do. Me and my team, we've always felt that if the words I want or I need are in anybody's brain in a conversation or in the air crossing anybody's lips, you're in a negotiation. You know, I want a cup of I want a cup of decaf after dinner. And if you've been a jerk at the meal, I know for a fact waiters will bring you caffeinated coffee. <laughs> you know, we it, it permeates. Any, anytime you want collaboration, you're in a negotiation, period. And then recognizing that across the board is just the reality of existence. Now, whether or not you respect that uh, and how you deal with it are two separate questions. But. Anytime collaboration is involved, you're in a negotiation. So negotiation isn't just the moments when we think we're negotiating, like we're negotiating a raise or getting a new job or buying or selling. It's literally happening every day. Yeah. And and like when you realize that you're in a negotiation, you've actually probably been in it for a while. Really? Which is a shame to realize it that late. Like uh, a company that I did a keynote for recently if I'm doing a keynote form, our negotiation training is probably appropriate for them. They're trying to figure that out. 
Yeah. And they're, but they've already committed to somebody else's book, somebody else's methodology. So I, I always ask them, like, what have you guys built your methodology around? And recent one was customer centric selling. And so I bought the book and I'm looking through it and it has a small chapter at the very end about negotiation. Now that you've finally all done, done all this, now you're in a negotiation. And I see that I'm thinking like, oh my God, you were in a negotiation so much sooner, but you got a sales book that tells you that it is the 10th step of a 10th step process. When in point of fact, there was a negotiation and positioning that's been going on since step one. Yeah. If negotiating is so common, why are, why are a lot of us so scared about it? Why does it make us so anxious? Well, it's um, what's our, how are we hardwired uh, to react to conflict? Mm. Very few people actually like conflict. You know, at least, at least two thirds of us don't like conflict. At least. Then what? What's the feedback that we have in the world as to what negotiation is about? I mean, Donald Trump. I'm the greatest negotiator in the world. People who do business with Trump get tired of getting beaten up by him. He can do a phenomenal job at getting things kickstarted. But after a while, you're like, if, if this dude's going to yell at me and threaten me and sue me, why do I want this? And people don't want to be that way. And but then. Everybody imagines that guy in their brain. Like we talk to people all the time. Like what's in your head as you're getting ready to go into a negotiation? Because we want to see if it, it backs up our three types. And it's, it's, we believe there's three types, uh, fight, flight, make friends to conflict. And that the world splits up evenly into thirds. And so we try to get into the thought patterns of each one of the three. And regardless of which type you are, when we ask people, who do you, who are you preparing to encounter? Everybody prepares and expects the, the table pounding, threatening, lawsuit threatening person on the other side. So I think that speaks to why we're apprehensive about it. What are the three types? Fight, flight, make friends. It's kind of uh, caveman survival mode, the uh, cavemen that were descended from that survived when they saw a threat, they either fought it, they ran from it, they made friends with it. It's a derivation. Like when I went through the program on negotiation there at Harvard's winter negotiation workshop, they give everybody at the very beginning something called the TKI, Thomas Kilman conflict mode instrument. And it breaks into five types. And then Harvard will throw two of the five out, leaving you with three. And they are very close to the three types that I just outlined, slightly different names and verbiage. And then wherever they've tested them, the crowd splits pretty evenly into thirds. And so we started doing that test with everybody we taught at Georgetown and at USC or anywhere else. And we found consistently, like a given group may, may skew more in assertives in one class. So there may be more analysts in another class. But And when you even it out globally, you end up with the world being divided pretty evenly into thirds. Fight, flight, or make friends. Right. Right. And a fight guy, that's, that's the obvious dude. The flight guy is actually highly analytical. They view conflict as just 
ridiculously inefficient. It's not a matter of courage. It's just a matter of analytical choice. And so why would I engage in this battle when I'm, even if I win, I'm at least going to get wounded. I'm not going to engage in any battles that I don't absolutely have to. And so they'll avoid them, which is what TKI calls them, avoiders. So, Chris, I'm a person who has some social anxiety. I avoid people, if, if uh, people I don't know, situations that make me feel uncomfortable. Right. And I have to walk into a negotiation. Say I'm asking for a raise. How do I prepare? How do I be a person who stays at the table and gets what I want? when I'm so scared that that person is going to be a jerk who's going to yell at me? Yeah, well, there's a mindset approach to it and a um, preparation approach. And, you know, there's some pretty simple steps in terms of preparation. People are scared of stuff when, when in their brain, they're envisioning a really negative outcome. You know, that's the... Because they feel like they don't deserve it. Or they don't deserve it, or even if they do deserve it, you know, there's a whole variety of reasons why. It could be, number one, they don't deserve it. Number two, they do deserve it. The other side's never going to get it, to, give it to them. So one way or another, they beat themselves before they even get to the table. Hmm. So it's it's sort of a recognition, which is actually sort of it's a normal human response because the amygdala were hardwired to be negative, which can be defeated with some simple preparation. There, you know, there's some there's some routines. The same spiritual hygiene that you need to exercise on a regular basis just to be a happier person, similar to that applied to negotiation approach. Like there's what's your approach to begin with? Like to be inherently curious. Like curiosity is a superpower. We've been talking about curiosity as a superpower for since before we discovered one of Taleb's books, which is anti-fragile. Of course, he wrote The Black Swan, which inspired the name of my company. But I just stumbled over Talib's book, Anti-Fragile, which he wrote back in 2012. But he says that anti-fragile curiosity is an anti-fragile characteristic. When you're genuinely curious, you can't be afraid at the same time. The brain is not capable of both emotions. You can't be intimidated. You can't have self-doubt. Genuine curiosity to the world or the interaction is like this superpower, which it takes some practice and prep to get into that. But that's one of the ways like, all right, so if you're not going to pay me and I'm just, I'm just really curious why, you know, what's behind, you know, that kind of an approach is also non-threatening to the other side. The great thing about curiosity is, you remove yourself as a threat to the other side. They sense that. Okay, so so talk us through like bit by bit. I'm I'm so anxious. I'm walking into this negotiation. I'm walking into this meeting with my boss. The anxiety is so strong in me. All right, so for it not to be work work out is an mm-hmm. outcome instead of the outcome. Mm. All right, so that's a possibility. And so worst, worst thing that happens is I walk out exactly as I was before I walked in. But I realize just as a human being, there are other possibilities. So I'm curious as to what the other possibilities are. Or I'm curious about 
my boss's perspective on this. You know, uh, maybe the boss is going to tell me something that'll help me get that money. Or maybe, maybe I'll find out that I'm in the wrong place to begin with. Like there's all these possibilities that when you go from wondering to knowing, you're always better off. And, what, you know, one of the things that we're teaching people in Black Swan Method is like, look, even if you get the answer that you were most afraid of getting, you went from wondering to knowing. And that, by definition, always makes you better off because the next decision that you have to make is enlightened if you wonder if something bad is going to happen to knowing it's going to happen. Now I can plan for that eventuality. But you can't really plan for it if you don't know. So curiosity is a good one. And do you literally ask the questions as if you're curious? Do you ask your boss those questions or is the curiosity more in your head? Critical that you ask them as if you're curious. Yeah. Because that, how you're perceived then is you're no longer perceived as a threat. And if you're genuinely curious, then it elevates them because it gives them the opportunity to enlighten you. Hmm. which is an elevating experience for them. Makes them feel good. Exactly. And they want more of it. They don't really realize that you are the magician that's creating that great feeling. Is asking questions in general a good technique in a negotiation? That in and of itself is a great question. A short answer is no. Oh. So you got to gather information. Now, first of all, how we're taught to ask questions Unfortunately, you know, like confirming questions, like you're just respectful. Look, I'm just trying to confirm the following is true. Is this true? Or does this typically most questions are slanted seeking the word yes, which might be a, a very respectful intention looking for mere confirmation. The problem is this whole sort of confirmation approach has been sort of hijacked by this yes momentum or momentum selling response, which the people that are going to pick our pocket and cut our throat have gotten very good at creating this yes momentum. Would you like to make more money? Would you like to live in a bigger house? Would you like to travel the world for free, stay in five-star restaurants or hotels, eat at five-star restaurants? Like that hustle has been run on everybody. Everybody, 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 everybody is battered. What we what we refer to as yes battered. Like if I call you on the phone and I say, Do you have a few minutes to talk? You're gonna go, Ooh, how long is a few minutes? If I say yes, what am I letting myself in for? Because you said yes to somebody else and you don't have a clear memory in your mind of when it happened. Before five times, you kind of got bamboozled with this yes stuff, which then makes everybody yes battered. Yes battered. That's a first problem oh. with, with, with questions. Now, the second problem, let's say you don't ask a yes question, but you ask a good open-ended question, and it's designed properly. And if it's designed properly, mm -hmm. it probably starts with the words what, what or how, and you ask it genuinely curious. Mm -hmm. Now the problem with that is they got to have the mental gas in the tank to answer because that triggers what Danny Kahneman would call slow thinking or in-depth thinking. Everybody has a decision capacity for each and every day. There's only so many decisions you can make in a day. Mm 
which is why the most productive conversations that are really productive are usually in the morning where people got a lot of gas in the mental tank. Now, getting in anytime, once you start climbing north of 11 a.m., you got circadian rhythm issues, you got food issues, you got how much sleep you got the night before, you got how much stress was in the day. People are not going to be able to answer in-depth, good, solid, stop you in your tracks, thinking questions once you start clearing noontime. What you have, how many carbs you have for lunch? Are you in a food coma? <laughs> so that doesn't alleviate the necessity of gathering information. It just makes questions of a less and less effective tool. And then depending upon who you're talking to, the analytical type doesn't want to answer a question until they've thought through every single response. And I've literally heard a CEO of a company who was highly analytical say, never answer a question sooner than 36 hours. Wow. Because you got to think about it. You got to think of all the implications and you got to sleep on it. You got to bake on it. Now, the person asking a question doesn't want to wait 36 hours for the answer. So what do you do? What we found, which we were blown away by, the tiny shift from a question to basically a label. If I go from what have you got on your mind mm-hmm. to seems like you got some stuff on your mind, like you're going to answer the second one. I can't explain the brain science behind it. I just know it to be true. Yeah. I'm going to get a stream of consciousness out of you on the second one much sooner than I will and much cleaner than I will from a question. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tomer Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. uh, We'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. What is the role of empathy? I mean, can you outline, and I, I don't want you to give away the farm here, but I know you talk about this. Can you outline a negotiation tactic from preparation to being in the room for someone who does better with empathy and being a bit more quiet, you know, because they might be feeling anxious, then Mr. Alec Baldwin always be closing. Hmm. 
Yeah. All right. So that would really get back to your definition of empathy, which is why, why I ended up at uh, Harvard Law School to talk about negotiation while I was still in the bureau was because we didn't define empathy as sympathy. We said empathy is just being articulate the other side's point of view, period. No agreement, no disagreement, just verbal observation. So that that really narrow definition, which is not common vernacular, common vernacular equates empathy to sympathy or a sharing of the emotions. We didn't have the sharing of the emotions part in there either. And so if you define it there in that really narrow area where it's not agreement, it's not an emotional resonance. Now, you might be able to see the other person's emotions, but you don't got to feel them. Recognizing them, I can see that you're angry without me being angry. Mm-hmm. I, can, I can say, I see that you're down. I don't got to be down to see that. That's, that's our definition of empathy. And so then when you do that, it also unleashes it's perspective your taking more. It's it's like you can take the perspective of the other person. Absolutely. But you're not going to go solve their problems necessarily. Absolutely. And you know, kind of the crazy thing about it is it's being able to articulate the other side's point of view. Mm. And you know, there, there's I'm, I'm thinking about you know, there's been a couple of talks about you know, non-scripted shows, television. We're in a conversation with a guy right now that um, uh, puts programming out on TVs, TVs and airports. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, how can you possibly disagree with someone if you're not certain of what their perspective is? And how can you be certain of what their perspective is? Be certain of what you're disagreeing with unless you can state it to the other person and they can tell you that they've got your perspective accurate. Yet almost nobody can do that. Either, either they, First of all, it's, it's really hard emotionally without practice, mm-hmm. which I think is the biggest barrier. I did um, – how, how many months ago was it when, when Israel was shelling Hamas in the Gaza Strip and they hit the AP office – Right. And a bunch of other sensitive locations because Hamas was, in fact, hiding weapons in the AP office and in a and in a school and in a hospital. I mean, that's where Hamas puts their weapons. And so then the social media's vitriol was unleashed. And I, um, I did a clubhouse room with Nicole Benham, really good friend of mine. And she's she's Jewish and she's like, I'm. You know, this is exhausting. We got to we got to bring this out in the open. And so our the premise of the, the clubhouse room that night was we want somebody supporting. We want people supporting Israel. We want people supporting Palestine. You are not allowed to attack the other side until you've expressed what you think their perspective is. Mm. And basically start out by saying, before I disagree, here's what I think your point of view is. Now, nobody fully successfully articulated the other side's perspective. But the important thing about it was nobody got into a shouting match. And that was the first time Nicole had ever been involved in a discussion on social media in that time frame on Israel Palestine that didn't devolve into a screaming name calling match. Just a mere act of trying to make somebody articulate the other side's perspective automatically calmed them down. 
So is that a good tool for me to do if I'm feeling anxious in a negotiation? Thousand percent. Yeah. Thousand thousand percent. And we just like this had been staring us in the face for quite a while. And we just recently discovered, you know, my son Brandon is talking, who's exceptional at applying these skills. He's probably better. He's better than I'll ever be. So he's in a conversation several years ago with a young lady that's now his wife and the mother of his child. And she is angry and she's packing a leave. And, you know, we refer to this as a that's right moment. You got to articulate the other side's view so that they can look you in the eye and say that's right. Mm. So she's about out the door. And if they were just in a shouting match, this means he was upset too. So, but he doesn't want her to leave. So he knows, you know, last ditch effort. I got to let her know I understand. So he sat down and he did this inventory of everything that she was upset about. And then he, he said, all right, so you're mad with me because I do this. I do this. I do this. You expect this. I fail to do it. He did the laundry list of the things that was making her angry. Without contradicting, explaining, or saying, but just nothing. And she said, that's right. And she, and she said, I'll stay. So he's telling us his story because we're working on another book, you know, as a way to show how powerful getting a that's right out of somebody could be. And I said, wait, 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 hold it. Look at what it did to you to go through that process. Cause you had to have been furious when you started. And for you to shift instantly in the mindset to demonstrate empathy calmed you down. And that's when we decided, you know, I use that as, you know, the impetus to the, the Israeli-Palestinian thing. It was like, look, you could, you could badmouth the other side all you want. You could, you could be born in Palestine and you could have the laundry list of the sins that Israel has committed. And you can pound them with that after you simply lay out what their perspective is. So talk about that's right. What does that's yeah. right signify? You know, it's when you said something that the other side believes is completely accurate. And, and if, you've, if you've done it with any insight, you've actually triggered an epiphany in, their, in, their, in them. And so when we wrote Never Split the Difference, we're kicking this around with tall and Tall said, I think it creates a subtle epiphany in the other side. So I'm like, cool, that's, that makes sense. Let me look up the neuroscience of epiphany. And among the neurochemicals that you get a hit of in an epiphany is oxytocin, which is the bonding drug. Yeah, it's good. And then we started going back and reflecting and reapplying this. Like this is, and Trump is only one example of a charismatic leader. Only the most recent example. So to, to single him out would be to diminish the accomplishments of other charismatics. And like, love him or hate him, he's a charismatic. And people are bonded to him. And our hypothesis is when Donald Trump stands up in front of a crowd and articulates their perspective, you know, the media, it's, it's uh, you know, it's uh, fake media or, you know, fake news. He begins to articulate what's in their head. And they look at him and they go, that's right. And the durability of the devotion of followers to charismatics, we are completely 
convinced it's as a result of this oxytocin bonding. When the other side says something that you believe to be the complete truth and you are all in, you say, that's right. And bang, people are bonded. So is that a, that's a tool that I can use as someone, as an anxious person, but who maybe is good at picking up on unsaid cues or good at asking yep. questions. I can get someone to the that's right moment. And that's a skill. Yes. It's a skill. And the other thing that's cool about it is, and um, I'm a huge fan of Andrew Huberman these days, neuroscientist out of Stanford, great guy, Huberman Labs podcast, like insane amount of usable science. So I'm always looking at him for information. He did one recently on the neuroscience of relationships, and he talked about oxytocin and the thing that he threw in, like, if you get a hit of oxytocin, you're more likely to tell the truth. So if I can trigger a hit of oxytocin in you in a negotiation, you're less likely to lie to me after that point. Huh. That's like, that's like getting a, that's like being at Hogwarts and having, you know, <laughs> Dumbledore tell you how to do a spell, right? <laughs> Do I talk a lot to get them to the what's right moment? I think one of the questions I hear from people who have anxiety is, I, I, I'm worried I'm going to talk too much or I'm worried I'm not going to talk enough. I, I don't, how much do I talk to set the stage? Yeah, you know, I think the five to one ratio is about good. What's that? Like you can't go dead silent, but the other person definitely needs to be talking more than you. Okay. And that's why, you know, the the, the skills... On the list of the negotiation nine, a lot of them are designed for you to drop something in and then go dead silent, dynamic silence. Because you got to, like the label that I referred to earlier, sounds like there's something on your mind. I got to go dead silent to let that sink in and give you a chance to talk. What about after the negotiation? I think that, because, you know, a lot of times they're ongoing. People who have anxiety tend to ruminate, right? They stew and run yep. things over and over in their heads. What advice do you have for people on how to how to sort of win after the negotiation if it's still ongoing? Once you leave the room, what should you do? Yeah, two things. Well, I mean, um, first of all, always be thinking about you know I- implementation. Mm. It's really easy for people to misunderstand implementation. Like what I had in my head, what you had in your head. We think it's obvious, but unless we verbally check with one another, you know, it just ain't. Right. Um, so, you know, there's, uh, you know, don't be afraid to confirm and to clarify. Mm. You know, a lot of people are afraid to confirm and clarify because they think it's going to make them look stupid. When in point of fact, the other side appreciates the heck out of it. Mm-hmm. And so this fear of looking stupid really gets in our way. Like, you know, the the Mark Twain phrase from way back when, I think just kills people because he says, you know, to paraphrase, you know, it's better to remain silent and let people think you're stupid than to speak up and remove all doubt. <laughs> you know, I think that has horrified people about clarifying. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that people really miss, I mean, hugely, so much, the last impression is a lasting impression. Mm. So whatever, you know, everybody, the first impression is your second most important impression. The most important impression is the last impression. Last impression got to be positive. You know, there's, there's, there's data behind this. Data in practice backs this up completely. 
And so but what do people mostly do? They say the thing that was harsh that they were afraid to say to if they if they say it at all, the last impression usually ends up being a cheap shot. I got I got a I got a I got a guy trying to solicit me for this, you know, his book writing company. And I ignored his emails twice and he didn't take get the message. So I, I sent him back, look, I'm sorry, I got a book deal with somebody else. Take this as a final no. Thank you for your effort. You know, and so he wrote he writes back to me and he says, I appreciate you getting back to me. So just so you know, we're gonna remove you from our list. And then he signs it. And I thought, what a really lousy way to end the interaction. Like that just left a really bad taste in my mouth. Like just really, really negative. And you know, since the guy had somewhat annoyed me, but I appreciated his persistence. Like, I'd be happy to get back to him and say, look, you got to understand, here, here's where you left me. So for your future success with others, mm-hmm. don't ever finish an email with a cheap shot like that, because that comes off as a cheap shot. But the last impression is a lasting impression. So how do you fix that if you're not used to it? Typically, whatever you would said at the beginning of the interaction, because everybody knows how to open positively, at least use those same words to finish positively. Like if you're going in for a job negotiation, you probably say with your boss right up front, you know, I love it here. This is a great job. It's been very satisfying for me. You know, I'd, I'd love to be here for the next 20 years. That'd probably be pretty close to what almost anybody would come up with to open a job negotiation. Like how you walk out the door is gonna be what is the lasting impression with your boss. And come heck or high water, you should at least, you know, even if you got nothing out of the negotiation, you could finish by saying like, look, you know, when I walked in here today, it was because I've loved this job and I would love to be here for 20 years. And that hasn't changed. Hmm. Thank you for your time. Wow. And then, then walk out with that, like scripting and ending that's completely true, does not compromise your integrity in any way, shape, or form. And if you could have worked things out, you would have you you would be happy to be there for 20 years. That's a completely true statement. So you're not you're not engaged in some sycophantic move, which makes most of us feel dirty. You know, you're not being a sycophant walking out of the door. You're not compromising your principles. You're saying something that's unequivocally true. If you could give me the compensation package that would retain me, I would love to be here for the next 20 years and live and die and bleed for this company. Right. My last question, I never thought about the end, so that's super helpful. My last question is... is Nobody is, thinks about <laughs> No one thinks too, about like, the nobody end. Nobody does. <laughs> you think no, about the start. <laughs> right. Um. I get very emotional. I cry easily. Um, I get very, very anxious. And sometimes it's hard for me to talk. And so when I'm in a negotiation with someone who is very rational and data-driven and non-emotional, I can become a puddle. Yeah, 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 yeah. What should I do? Should I hire someone else to negotiate for me? Is like, is there any way that, that I can win as a negotiator? Well, you know, the other crazy thing about this whole 
the neuroscience and the labeling and stuff, like labeling, just slapping a label on an emotion diminishes that emotion every time. There's been a number of neuroscience experiments that have backed that up. You know, they've done, they do these experiments where they induce negativity in people. They watch certain areas of the brain light up with the fMRI, and they have the person simply call out what they're feeling. And so you can self-label as well, which means in the moment, like the real struggle is how do I get myself out of the negative emotion? You can say, look, I'm, 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 I'm sad right now. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm a fearful. I'm afraid. You can either say it out loud. You could say it to yourself. And it will diminish the emotion. I mean, in the moment, you can self-label and you can dig yourself out. And, you know, that, that, that comes with practice. Like, that's one way to, to, to get out of it. You know, there, there's other less effective methods. Like, anger will retrieve you from a negative, other, the negative, sad, debilitating emotions. But anger will kind of only take you to the ability of being maybe a B minus negotiator. Like the A plus negotiators don't use anger. They use curiosity. They use patience. They use deference. Like, and, and I'd be happy to stack Oprah's track record as a negotiator up against anybody. And the last thing that she's known at is being angry or a pushover. See, what a lot of people don't realize about Oprah seeming so nice, there ain't anybody on the planet talking about how Oprah's a pushover. Hmm. Why, do you, why do you choose Oprah? I mean, Oprah's my hero, but wh- why do you choose Oprah in particular as such a great example? Well, when, when, when we got turned on to The Last Impression is a Lasting Impression, you know, I was already a big fan of her accomplishments and like, some of the greatest negotiations in the world. She gets Lance Armstrong on camera and gets him to admit everything. He didn't walk into that blind. Look at the people she's gotten on camera and the things that she's done. That's a phenomenal success. Look at where she started and where she is. But so anyway, then I sit down with a uh, lady named Cindy Mori, who was Oprah's booker, still is, but at the time she'd been Oprah's booker for 19 years. And I'm telling her about the Gallup data where the last impression is the lasting impression. Human beings don't remember things how they happen. They remember the most intense moment and how it ended. And so I know of several hostage negotiations that we turn them around by taking over how each conversation ended, not how they began, but how they ended. And so Cindy looks at me and she says, yeah, that's, that's Oprah's philosophy and everybody that works for her. She said, the entertainment industry is typically in and a limo, out in a taxi. And at Oprah, it's in and a limo, out in a limo. We make sure that every step of the way, especially at the end, that people think, feel like they've been held and treated with tremendous regard. And I'm like, wow, cool. Oprah's a hostage negotiator. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Um, Well, Chris, thank you so much for your wisdom. I really appreciate it. I have been delighted with this conversation. I have been looking forward to this since we first started talking about it. So the pleasure is all mine. That's it for today's show. The Anxious Achiever is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krenko. Many thanks to all our guests for sharing their stories with us. On an upcoming show, we'll be looking deeper at imposter syndrome and how it affects your mental health. 
To share your story about imposter syndrome, send us a voice memo or video to anxiousachievermail at gmail.com. You can tweet me at moraam or reach me on LinkedIn. Send me a message. I promise I'll respond. If you love the show, tell your friends, subscribe, and leave a review. From LinkedIn, this is Maura Aaron's Mealing.